Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Ronaldo, today we're recording on November 24th. Uh, let's change formats a little today and have a more freewheeling conversation about current events and the trends we're seeing. Uh, where should we start? Yeah, you know what? I think what we should start is by inviting our listeners to tell us, those of you listening to this broadcast, please let us know. We're, we're, we're trying out a new format here, and we want to see if you like this format, and um, if so, let us know, and we'll do more of it. Uh, and this is going to be a little more chatty than the usual style. Uh, and one of the reasons is that we've gotten the feedback that uh, spending a little more time on some topics is helpful given the depth and complexity of those topics. So today we're going to try that and see how it goes, and we're really looking for your feedback. Uh, if it's positive, great, we'll do more of it. And if it's um, it didn't work as well, let us know that too. So uh, we can keep fine-tuning this to make it of optimum value to you. But with that in mind, where do you want to start today, Matt? Yeah, so I think that... Uh, a big piece of news and one of the topics we cover a lot is the U.S. Congress. And we've had a pretty significant change since the last recording. Uh, Congressman Paul Ryan became the Speaker of the House after a protracted search when the uh, Tea Party, which has been at odds with the, the traditional uh, Republican Party, was rejecting a more traditional candidate. Although I thought he was pretty extreme, Kevin McCarthy. Well, Kevin McCarthy was extreme, is extreme. Um, and the other problem with Kevin McCarthy is that he had some baggage that they didn't realize here in California. He had ran a California state Senate race in which he, he basically identified himself as uh, David Duke without the baggage, hmm. meaning he was you could rely on him in the KKK sense. So to, to call yourself David Duke in California is pretty extreme given the liberal, liberal demeanor of the state. But but you can't do that anywhere in America except very few places which are extremely overtly racist. So when they realized that they had a real loser in Kevin and that he, frankly, is not that sharp a pencil in the pack anyway, um, then they went and searched in earnest and they came up with Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan had the good sense to say no at first. Right. And yeah, he, he was the only viable candidate for the speakership. And he, he kind of saw that coming and he said, the only way I'm doing this horrible job is on my terms. Uh, I respected that, even though he's not my favorite uh, person in terms of his policies. Uh, I think that he's much more reasonable, and because of his power play, uh, by forcing the Republicans to essentially come come to him and ask him to do the job, he's in a he's in a much tougher, a stronger position than his. Uh, yeah, and, and he, he actually changed some of the rules so that the speaker had more power. So you can't challenge a number of the speaker decisions now. But I think that what really happened there is the, the insanity of the breakdown of the 49 Tea Party coalition members who were tying up the Republican caucus and thereby tying up the entire Congress. Um, it, it had gotten to the point where it was a complete and utter breakdown. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I want to just remind our listeners that the, the rule, which is not even a rule, it was, it was an, an agreement between Republicans called the Hastert Rule named after former Speaker Hastert, who just last week was found guilty, pled guilty to felonies. Um, you know, so he's now a convicted felon who made up this silly rule that is not even a formal rule, which says you can't take anything to the floor of the House unless a majority of the Republican Congress conference is for it, caucus. And that's kind of crazy because there are many times when some members in the caucus can't be for something and other members are for it, and what they, he, they were doing is trying to block the Democrats from having a legitimate vote on anything. Right. And, of course, that didn't work when the Democrats controlled the Senate. So they thought, well, we beat Democrats in the Senate, blaming them for why it's all screwed up in Congress. Then we'll have a, the right Senate, and then we'll be able to do it. And, of course, they couldn't do it then. So it became a complete blockage to any kind of, kind of governing. And I think that Paul Ryan— uh, not only did he do a smart thing, I mean, he's young enough and attractive enough that he thinks he'd like to run for president someday. He ran right. for vice president last time. So he wasn't about to put himself from a position of incredible power, which was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and give himself the job of speaker, which was thankless and where he was going to get blocked and make, be, he was going to be made look as silly as Boehner. 
he wasn't going to take it unless the Tea Party backed down and said, okay, we'll go with the program, so to speak. Right. And so I think that Paul Ryan's a, a big plus. And, you know, um, th we're at a, this is the, the new thing we're doing with this format. So th this is formally the time we talk about the, uh, the deck, the, um, the doomsday clock. But um, I think that uh, Ryan and the way he's handling it is actually a positive. And I'm going to give it, we're going to take it back another minute from, from tragedy for two reasons. One, what happened when Boehner left, he had the good judgment, and I think Ryan re probably required it, to set up a two-year we won't kick about the budget and the debt ceiling. So that gives Paul Ryan a breathing room between now and the, and the election, right. which is huge. Yeah. The second thing that happened, I think, which is really key, is that Ryan went on 60 Minutes and said in public, which no Republican's been able to do up until now, yeah, I can work with, with Obama. We just got to find the right things to work on. So I believe what he's telegraphing is there are places like immigration where the Republicans are so far off the deep end that there's no way they can go near. It's like a third rail. They can't touch it because they can only get burned worse. They, they're, they're, as it is, they, unless they put one of the his, potential Hispanics, Cruz, Rubio, or Bush might have, be able to draw some Hispanic votes, but even then it's going to be very difficult for them to get Hispanics, and black's almost impossible. So they, they know they're not going to pick up minority votes, and they can't win without them. So they don't want to do anything to further bruise the minorities. At the same time, they can't do nothing in government. So what Ryan is telegraphing is we're going to hold on to immigration because we can't win there, but we'll get together with you on a couple other things, and it's already starting to happen. So the logjam is broken, and I think it's Ryan's got more to gain personally in his quest for the presidency ultimately than he has to lose by finding selective measures where they can work with the Democrats across the aisle and watch for him to ignore the Hastert rule whenever he wants. Yeah, it's it's very interesting turn of events, and you know I think I think the general outlook, as you're saying, is is good for the economy as a result, especially getting all those budget deals uh, done and getting them off the table before the election. Yeah, there are there are some by the way, there's some key fat fights that could occur to throw a you know a, a wrench in, in the machinery, but I don't expect them to happen because if they were going to throw that wrench, they would have thrown it already, and I don't expect that the Tea Party will come out of the elections in 2016 with greater strength than they have now. So well, that's a good question. I mean, it depends on this presidential race, right? It's it's it, in terms of their actual numbers probably not. It's going to be a democratic year if if things continue on the current course in my uh, long-term vision here just because I think Democrats come out a lot more for presidential elections. They do. That's clear. Yeah, and and also, I mean, it depends on who the nominees are here, but the the Republican nominees are clearly f getting the the Democrats very fired up and concerned, as they should. And I think we'll talk a little bit about uh, a couple of those potential nominees in, in, the, in a minute. Yeah, and I think I don't think the process is helping the Republicans because what, what they're doing, from, from what I can tell, um, the Republicans, by trying to outdo each other with outrageous statements and outrageous positions, um, I think what they're doing is they're drink, bringing a lot of attention to their third of the electorate. And that's what they got. They got about 25, 30% at max. And so you now have this interesting um, conflict, really, that's out in the open between Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump, the leader in, in, in the polls. And, and you've got two billionaires slugging it out, basically. Yeah. Uh, you've got somebody like Karl Rove, who goes on the talk show circuit to talk about the McKinley book, because what he's trying to say is it's time for the re responsible Republicans to take control again. And he's been charged to do that. He was asked specifically whether he would have crossroads invest in the primaries. And he said, no, we will only invest in the general. We will be investing in the primaries and Senate campaigns. So what you've got is a, and we've talked about it on the show before, I, I, what I'm seeing is the, uh, is the Republican nominee will probably be a very right-wing nominee. So I'm, I'm, my bet would have been until a week ago would have been Rubio. Uh, it looks like Cruz is coming up fast. I never thought it would be Carson. I don't think it'll be Trump. And now it looks like Cruz can beat Rubio because Rubio's got a couple of very, very left-wing people that are very much against him. So um, right-wing people, excuse me. So it, it, it's looking to me like what we're probably going to face is a higher probability of Cruz getting the nomination. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty dark picture in some ways also, though, because of his stance on some of these more the, – the, the racial politics have been the, the major theme of the last week or so uh, with some really – outrageous statements by Trump and actions by Trump in a variety of ways. Um, 
But before we go there, let's wrap up that economic doomsday clock, Ronaldo. And, and you know, last last year, uh, sorry, last month we were at 11:49, 11 minutes away from midnight. So you're saying we're going to tick back another minute away from midnight to 11:48? No, 11:50. That's towards midnight. It'll be 11:50. Yeah, 48. Yes. 11:48. So we're 12 minutes from midnight, and you're seeing that as a result of mostly from of the changeover in speakership and action in Congress. Yeah, because because the the it was clear that the blockage in Congress was almost catatonic. And so uh, with that kind of blockage, the economy was a great risk and everybody knew it. Uh, and what you were looking at was a, was a president who was going to try and rule without a Congress, a Senate or, or a House. And that's tough to do. So a lot, of, a lot of things can go wrong in that scenario, including battles over the debt ceiling, battles over the budget, etc. With those off the table for a while, uh, the places where they can agree, and it's kind of remarkable that they can't agree on some of the things that w- would seem to me to be obvious, but apparently they can't. Uh, but there will be things that they will find agreement on. Uh, some of them are starting to trickle through now. And as they do, I'm, I'm suspecting that we will have a, uh, a an opportunity for some of the underlying positive economic forces to, 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 to arise. Let me give you an example. We talked about it on the show months and months ago, probably last February, March. As the price of gasoline drops, which it's been doing, and we said then that it would stay down, it will, um, what it has done is unleashed a tremendous amount of consumer buying power on those Americans, the bottom 90%, 90%, who literally are, because even if you're middle class, if somebody gives you back 20 to $50 a week, you're happy. And you'll have a little better Christmas present. And you'll have a little more dining out. And you'll have a little bit more recreation. So what's happening is, despite the fact that the Congress continues to hold on to austerity, now this new bill, which looks like it's going to have a little lift in domestic spending and a little lift in military, actually will be somewhat stimulative, given that we've wrung the economy out so bad. Right. But what's really stimulated the economy right now, because that bill hasn't taken effect and won't until next year at the earliest, is the way that people are putting money in their pockets instead of their gas tanks. So using the multiplier effect, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of spending, which have occurred because of that one change, which I believe is a permanent change. Hundreds of millions? Billions. Hundreds of billions? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's going into the economy as opposed to just to the oil yeah, companies? Yeah, because see, you don't get that. You don't. When your first billion gets spent, you get a five billion pop, but it doesn't happen in day one. It happens over a couple of years. So when you're talking about $100 billion, that's not a lot in a GDP that we have. A, what we have a, right now, we, I think we have a 14 to $16 trillion, about $15 trillion GDP. Okay? So if you've got a $15 trillion GDP, you know, a billion isn't that much. Even $100 billion is not that much. But what happens is when you unleash um, $100 billion from the, from, the, from, the, from the gas tank, that multiplies into $500 billion because of the multiplier effect. And then what happens is as other things kick in, 2016, you'll start to see the spending bill that is going to, that's now coming through the Congress where they're going to lift domestic spending a bit. That's going to kick in for the next round of stimulus. So what I'm seeing is hundreds of billions of dollars being released between now and, say, December 20, 2016, which coincides with the election, at a time when the unemployment rate is now down around uh, 5%, very close to structural unemployment, structural employment. So a lot of things are going in the right direction. And in fact, the Democrats are going into this election with an economy that's strong, inflation that's non-existent. There will, by the way, everybody knows it at this point. So there's no secret. We are going to see an interest rate rise in December. It's only going to be a quarter point, I predict. So it's insignificant in terms of the impact. And I believe the markets will adjust to it. In fact, they're adjusting already. So I'm, I'm seeing a very bullish economy in the domestic side of the U.S. And then I'm seeing an even more bullish thing happening with our trading partner north of the border. In Canada. North Canada, yeah. So, yeah, so you're thinking of, we'll probably be around 3% GDP growth annualized in the fourth quarter. Or better. Which will bring us up to 25 to 3% for the year. More than 25 be 25 3 or, or better, yeah. Which is pretty close to our predictions at the beginning of the very year. Very close, yeah. very close. And and I think that's a good thing, uh, and I think it's, and it's based on really strong fundamentals, not anything the government did to help it, because most of this year was a waste. And, and by the way, look at the economies where austerity has been kept firmly in place. Places like the UK, where you know it's 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 crazy. I mean, Germany, for goodness sakes, and and the way that they enforced austerity on the Greeks is is unconscionable, and and frankly, not healthy for the European economy. 
So, in, in, I don't know if we're going to talk about Europe today, but the wave of refugees hitting Europe at a time when Europe's basically on its knees, its economy is, 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 is not growing at all. Uh, so the, the idea is that the, um, the, the ability to absorb new people is reduced when you don't have an economy that's growing. So when you put all that together, Europe really needs to start stimulating. Now, the same thing's true in the U.S. I mean, can you, I, I, I found out that the, the Lincoln Tunnel is 80 years old. Wow. That's scary. Yeah. I also found out that it's in bad need of repair. And a lot of people drive through that every day. Yeah. So what is it going to take? What kind of crisis is it going to take for people to realize they got to stop this austerity? Well, they figured it out, as we said in the program last time, in South Carolina, when all their dams and bridges and, and roads started failing in that last huge rainstorm. Right. So if we get smart and we realize that... When you, when you hire somebody to fix a bridge or improve a railroad or build a road or any infrastructure spending at all, that's money that stays in America, and that gets multiplied. So we have to start doing that. It's way past time. And, and we've got the surplus in, 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 because the interest rates are so low. This is when you buy things. You, you buy infrastructure when the debt is very inexpensive because you get the benefit of it when the debts start to go up in, in, in amount, when the percentage for interest rates goes up. So, do you want to talk more about the U.S. here before we move on to the international economy? Uh, what do you think? Well, I think that the the other thing to talk about is uh, what you touched on about there, there's a business story behind the kind of Republican politics that we're that we're seeing oh, yeah. in the in the Republican presidential race, and it's it's the news business that we don't always talk about here, but we do we do talk about media. In, in this case, it, it's just reprehensible how much. The, there's just a party and, and almost a, a media orgy around the Trump campaign and, and his, his statements. Because he's good for ratings. He's great for ratings, and he says crazy things. Yeah. And, and yeah, so the Academy since 1986 has stood for the principle that business needs to be responsible for what it does in society. And that applies to every component of the business structure. It's not just people who pollute the atmosphere. It applies as well to people who pollute your mind. Yeah. And I have a real bone to pick with the with the the news business, which is a big business. And it's and you know, and I and and you're not old enough to remember this, but I'm old enough to remember <laughs> Edward R. Murrell. I'm old enough to remember what it was like to have Walter Cronkite as the conscience of a nation. <clears throat> and what we've gone is we've lost that in, in favor of happy talk news. And so <clears throat> we're seeing now this false equivocation that news people have stopped telling the news. They're more interested in ratings and entertainment. So when someone like Donald Trump tells a bold-faced lie, a total lie, and he says, by the way, Republicans aren't going to be mad at me for saying this because what I'm talking about, um, Rupert Murdoch agrees with. Karl Rove would agree with this. When he gets caught telling a lie like that, like thousands of people cheering, Muslims cheering. In, in yeah, his, his lie was that he, he witnessed thousands of people in Jersey City, New Jersey, across the, the river from uh, the, tw the Twin Towers. He saw... Thousands of people celebrating when the towers fell on 9-11. He said it was everywhere. You could, it was on all the news. Well, there is not one piece of footage anywhere in the world that tells him that that's true. It's a, it's a lie. It was, he made up that lie. And he probably made up that lie because he saw some story about Muslims somewhere cheering when the towers came down. And he, he, he likes hyperbole. And he likes to inflate things. And he likes to conflate things. So he tells this whopper of a lie. He gets caught in it. And the media, as recently as this morning, instead of saying... Donald Trump, caught in a lie, continued to try and claim he was telling the truth. That's the story. Right. It's not Donald Trump claims that it actually happened and the news media is making this up. That's a false equivocation. The media is not making anything. So if the media won't stand up and say, the truth is, this didn't happen. Now, the story is, what are you going to do about the fact that you told a lie? That's the story. And, and until the news media starts doing that, we're not going to have a free country again, because yeah. you got to. You know what the you know what Thomas Jefferson said. He something the words they've been paraphrasing, but the the price of a, of a free society is a is a vigorous fourth. What do you call it? Fourth estate. Fourth estate. Okay. In other words, without accurate news to help us calibrate what we're doing, we won't make the right decisions. And the news media, because it's a business, because Trump is good for ratings is not doing its job of telling the truth and holding people accountable to what is fiction and what's fact. Now, yeah. if facts are hard to come by because, you know, it, it's, you're not clear, you're not certain, okay, there's two sides, fine. But when a fact is a fact, 
You can't let the other guy off by saying, well, he says this and you say that. No, he lied. What are we going to do about the fact he lied is the story. Yeah. Well, my, my feelings on the media are extremely complex. Uh, <laughs> given your history. <laughs> to say the least. But uh, that said, you know, I think, I think there's another factor and just something to add, which is that there's a lot of cowardly journalism going on. Uh, I think there's a lot of good journalism going on, too. It, but there's a lot of uh, journalism that is nothing but infotainment, right? Right. And, and, and it, they, they know that they're doing it. They know that Donald Trump was lying. They know that they're covering Donald Trump incessantly because it pulls people to people's lowest common denominator. Right. And it gets the left to freak out and go into the left, oh, woe is me mode that we love being, or those of us on the left love being. And uh, I, I guess I can, uh, I don't know. I don't really consider myself one of those woe is me people, frankly. But I, I see this on the left where people are are extremely happy to be freaked out by someone in the media, right? And then yeah. I would just say that the other the other piece is that he he stokes this racial uh, this racial hatred and this racial reaction and racializes almost everything since the beginning of when he started taking off. It was all race baiting. It still is. And you know the Republican Party and the Democratic Party used to do something called dog whistling, where they'd use phrases to uh, evoke and speak specifically to just the racists, and other people wouldn't hear it like a dog whistle. Now it's a foghorn of it's racist blast. blather. It's a, it's unbelievable how how blatant it is uh, when you know Trump is talking about Mexican people being racists. I'm mean, sorry, rapists, and you know kicking a, a black man who's a protester out of his his rally and basically encouraging his people to get beat him up, people to beat him up and yeah. hurt him. Yeah, he's a thug, and you know it's it, what the news media is doing now is what they did during the McCarthy era. Uh, there's a great film out right now called Trumbo, which talks about Dalton Trumbo and what happened during the blacklisting in Hollywood. And whether people like communists or not is not the purpose of the story. The purpose of the story is to say that during World War II, when communists, by the way, were our allies, I hasten to point out, um, to, 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 to red bait the way that Joseph McCarthy did with the Army McCarthy hearings, to destroy careers and lives uh, because it was for his political gain, when he frankly was a lightweight and everybody knew it. For us to permit that, to tolerate that, and to have it happen again in this country is intolerable. In fact, I, um, <clears throat> I saw a really good column, I think it was yesterday, uh, by, um, oh, um, it'll come to me, uh, Professor UC Berkeley, former Secretary of Reich, Robert Reich, in which he said that every politician, every business leader, everybody of substance in this country has got to stand up to this bigotry and say, this is unacceptable. For Trump to say we should keep lists of people like the Jews had in uh, 1939 and that they even should consider having a symbol on them. Now, there are over a billion Muslims, 1.1 billion Muslims in the world. And I'm sure that there's a disproportionate bunch of terrorists. Although, frankly, a lot more people have been killed by white terrorists in America than by Muslims. Absolutely. But, but taking that aside, I'm not, I'm not a, a, an apologist for terrorists. I'm totally against terrorism. But I'm also smart about how you stop it. And what Trump is doing is exposing us dangerously. He's, he's the one-man recruiting ad for ISIS. Absolutely. It's just crazy. And he's doing it for the basest possible motive, which was to... to, 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 to rabble rouse to incentivize the most base kind of emotions from people of fear and hatred and division and and race baiting do you think he even thinks he's going to win the presidency i don't know what he thinks because you know he, he just already doesn't have a shot no but he's already won in a sense do you know how much his capital asset value has gone up in this whole thing from his media entertainment he's got side of his his business yeah, he's or? gotten billions of promotional advertising He's he's good. His his speaking fee now will be you know two hundred thousand dollars a pop. If he doesn't make two to three billion dollars off this campaign after expenses, I'll be shocked. Which, by the way, is I think exactly what he set out to do. So I don't think he has to be president. What's going to be interesting is, did you see just yesterday he ruled a third party run back as a possibility? I didn't see that. Yes. Yes, and, and, and I hope he does. Mm -hmm. I hope he runs a third-party campaign. I hope he takes all of the racists and all of the red baiters and all of the people who hate Hispanics and all the people who hate Muslims and put them in one party, the Trump party, 
great. And the rest of us will elect a president that will be a pe- the president of all the people all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, really, really concerned that, that the media is not doing its job, calling the lies for what they are. Uh, when somebody says they're going to put Muslim badges on Muslims that are in this country lawfully, uh, that's just, I'm, I'm incensed by that. I, I, it's like the terrorists win. What they want us to do is to overreact so that we lose our way of life. And it's, it, it's just not acceptable for somebody's political motivations or in Trump's case for his economic motivations. It's not acceptable. So every day, Reich said, every day that we don't call this out is another day that we're leaching a toxic poison into the, into the bedrock of American society. And yeah. he's absolutely right. It's yeah. toxic. No, it's, 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 it's an amazing phenomenon. And uh, it's really interesting to see how unveiled the racism and the rage and the, the, the upset in that kind of, in his generation and in, in disenfranchised people who are looking for someone to blame. Yeah, and the misinformation. I mean, this whole thing with Mexican, you know, stop the Mexicans coming over. The, I don't know if our, our, our listeners know this, but in this year in, that we just came through, we will, this, we will end up where fewer Hispanics came from Mexico to America than left America. Now, that hasn't happened since World War II, since right after World War II. So that's a huge statistic. It's not like we're being overrun by Mexicans. And, 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 the, and the Mexicans that are coming here, where does he get off calling them rapists, criminals, and everything else? I mean, more, more damage gets done by skinheads in this country. You know, uh, McVeigh was not a Mexican. Last time I checked, okay, the the, the massacres at, at at Sandy Hook Elementary and in Colorado and on and on, those aren't Mexicans. No, those are white people. Yeah. And, and 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 even the other day, he tweets this thing. Yesterday, he tweets this thing where he says that where blacks killed whites and all this. And all the statistics were wrong. Yeah. And and he when he was called on it, he said, "Well, you expect me to fact check everything I send on a tweet?" <laughs> and he answers, "Yes, I do." So don't pretend it's a fact. If it, and, and, and he sent that out with a racist-looking, black, fearful picture. So he's clearly trying to play to people's racial fears. He's playing to their religious fears. I mean, I, and by the way, I think Jeb Bush deserves a tremendous uh, shellacking at the polls for what he said, which is only Christians should get into America. I mean, the founding fathers would have rolled over in their graves on that one. And, yeah. and, might and, as well burn down the Statue of Liberty. And while we're at, let's talk, really, you know, and while we're talking about it, the, the Syrians, we have an incredibly strong, beefed up, apparently, security apparatus for Syrians to enter the country because in all of this year, only 36, according to, um, um, let me see, that was, I got that from GPS. That was um, Fareed Zakaria. 36 people have made it into the country in the Syrian program of the refugees. And then after two years right. of vetting, there's no conceivable way that a terrorist would go through that process when the terrorists that did the damage in Paris had Belgian and French passports, they can get on an airplane and come here tomorrow morning for free. So why would you go through a two-year process when you can hop on an airplane and be here tomorrow morning? Right. I, to, to me, the whole thing is so insanely irrational. So you ask yourself, what's this about? And I think what it's about is at times of great change, the public can sometimes lose its way. And it gets fearful. And it's, it longs for the, the good old days when America was white, uh, Southern Baptist, or at least Protestant, uh, when it was, uh, w- when things were, quote, under control, close quote. Yeah. I mean, it's the crumbling of, of the traditional America, right? I mean, even if that ever really existed as people think of it, but basically the patriarchy and bigotry and homophobia and racism are just not acceptable anymore. And thus, people who have been on top, traditionally white and male and uh, wealthy people, are losing power in some ways. Maybe not wealthy people, but uh, white males are. And, and they're looking for someone to blame, right? And, and I just think that what we're watching is the final throes of this. And, it, and it's scary, and it's, and it's, and it's ugly, and it's, and it's really not... Uh, it doesn't feel good at the moment, but no. I, I think this is the end. Well, so let's just take that for a second. So if you are homophobic, go join Donald Trump's party. If you are a racist, go join Donald Trump's party. If you are a religious fanatic, go join Donald Trump. If you are a skinhead or a Nazi or a Ku Klux Klaner, 
go join Donald's party. You put them all together, it's not more than 30% of the population. Definitely it's not. probably less than that. It's probably like 15 or 20. Let all those people hang out with each other and bore themselves to tears and, 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 and cry about the world that's gone while the rest of us, the 70 or 80% of us, celebrate a new day in America. Yeah. You know, I was, I was, I was celebrating the fact that, 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 that Justin Trudeau got elected in Canada. I've said yeah. that our neighbor to the north is going to be doing very well. Well, you know, he's, he, he came right out and said it. I'm ending austerity. It's going to be fabulous. So they're shutting down any, they've already shut down any new uh, tar sands. Everybody said, oh my God, when they do that, they'll, it'll be terrible. I'm, I'm saying the exact opposite. I am predicting that Canada within two to three quarters max is going to be economically in great shape compared to where it is today and that's because of the end of austerity and that Justin Trudeau would do that knowing that the rest of the world is still buying uh, Angela Merkel's prescription for disaster. Yeah, yeah and you know Justin Trudeau, and we'll, we'll segue now to international politics here because I think there's so much to talk about one thing that he did that I just found amazing uh, was on, on his first day in office I believe it was he had his whole cabinet there with him, and it was made up half of women and half of men. And a reporter asked him, why, why do you have a gender balance in your cabinet? And it was simple. He just said, because it's 2015. <laughs> I know. I heard that line. That was it. It's a great— And it's, I was like, that's all you need to know. It's time for this. It's, it's like— Duh. It's, it's just, you know— I mean, it, the sad thing is he felt compelled that he had to have 50% women because you'd like to get to the point where— uh, we'd be gender blind the way we're supposed to be colorblind, but we're clearly not colorblind yet either. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's going to end up being seventy percent women if it was meritocracy, but that's just my two cents. Well, that's only because you, you're looking at the statistics on who gets the most graduate degrees, right? <laughs> and, and personal experience. <laughs> but but let's go back to um, let's go back though to uh, the the issue of um, this this international situation. Yeah, because what Trudeau is doing is he's calling this incredibly insane policy of austerity for what it is. Merkel's hanging on, her economy continues to be going south. Cameron's hanging on, her his economy's not doing well. Everybody who's getting off the austerity wagon is going to do well. Everybody who sticks on it is going to do poorly. So what is it about the austerity wagon? And what I would like to suggest is whenever people become fearful, they contract. Austerity is a contraction. So what we have to do is be willing to realize that the only reason we're hurting is because we're doing it to ourselves and go build the bridges we need and go build the roads we need and the trains and everything else. Uh, didn't, you, um, didn't we look at a statistic, you and I, um, last week about what happened to the U.S. economy after they drove the spike at, at Promontory Point, Utah, the Golden Spike? Yeah, the railroad. Yeah. Okay, so the first continental railroad was open right after the Civil War. So theoretically, well, we were broke after the Civil War. We had no money at all. We just paid for the war. We so, met the new currency to do that. Right. So I asked you to look up what happened to the economy after we put in the first transcontinental railway. What happened? As 50 years between, I think it was 1960 and 1910, it grew six times, sixfold. No, no, not 1910. No. It was 1850. I'm oh, sorry, 1860 yeah. to 1910. Right. And it was a sixfold 600 percent increase in economic return. That was what you do when you do infrastructure. And 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 by the way, you you could pick almost any period in society. When infrastructure is occurring, you get the same phenomenon. When it's not occurring, you don't. So, so the message is over, and, and Krugman has been so right on this all along. So has Joseph Stiglitz been right about this all along. So, from my point of view, what Justin Trudeau did is he got off of that hobby horse. When you look at the people, and I'll take Abe in Japan as an example, who try to straddle that, who, who aren't a complete austerity person, but also don't know how to reduce uh, institutional resistance in their economies. So let me just take them as an example. So Japan, because it's trying to have a foot in both worlds, has run its debt up. Now, it's, it's the, I think it's the biggest debtor nation in the world. It's 240% of their GDP, two and a half times almost their entire GDP in debt. Now, where's that end? The answer is it's not going to end unless you grow your economy pretty dramatically, and, and that has not happened. Yeah. So what could Japan do, just as an example? If Japan realized that it could give up its nuclear power and Pioneer, because it's got 50 reactors that are offline right now. It could, and Fukushima is still dumping radiation, 200,000 gallons a day of radioactive wastewater into the ocean every single day since Fukushima. And no end in sight, folks. Not even a date that they're willing to give us with an end in sight. And no plan yet adopted for an end in sight. 
So if Japan would say, gee, maybe this renewable energy thing is going to happen and this whole Paris Accords are coming up and maybe the world's going to want to get green and we could probably come to dominate several different technologies. They could dominate undersea currents. They've got the possibility with all their volcanic activity that they could do geothermal. They got a huge opportunity in hydrogen. I mean, I could design so many ways for Japan to get just filthy rich if they were willing to change their mind and, and get out of their institutional biases, which has kept them locked, along with their constitution, which we imposed upon them, in this, in this treadmill, which can only end in one, one way. And that will be absolute disaster for Japan, which it kind of has been for 22 years. I mean, how do, you, how do you say anything good about an economy that's gone down for 22 years? That's really kind of sad, sideways or down. So let's, let's talk about that question, Ronaldo, because I know there's a lot of audience members, and myself included, who, who wonder about this idea of growth. Uh, we talk about growth as a good thing in general, uh, but some people push back and say, look, infinite growth is impossible on, an, on a limited planet. Uh, what is your definition of growth, and how do you see growth being good, even though you know, we do have some planetary limits to contend with? Well, first of all, it's got nothing to do with the planet for a whole bunch of reasons, because um, we, I, it's hard for me to believe, except I lived through it, that we landed on the moon in 1969 and walked away from it. So when you say the limitations of this planetary system, you, what's wrong with the solar system? What's wrong with Mars? Sure. What's wrong with the lunar colonies we should have built and, and could build? My point is, we, there is no limitation on the fact we are on planet Earth. The limitation is the word sustainability. See, what happens with growth, if you don't do growth in a sustainable way, everything you do destroys the system you're milking. Yeah, I think that's what I was, I was thinking of, is, and, and that's the, a lot of the thinking that goes into it, that a lot of our economy has been based on turning right. nature into money. Right. So what we need to do is to realize that if we service nature, if we, if we come as stewards to the land, if we come as stewards to the economy, we would be able to create massive economic growth. Now, people who know me or gone to my talks or whatever know that I have gone on the record of saying that if we switch to a hydrogen economy globally, which I'm sure we will if we don't drown in the first sooner because of climate change. So if, if, if we just get on with it, move on to the hydrogen economy, which is what's going to replace the fossil fuel economy, we're going to go from a $64, $65 trillion GDP globally to around $350 trillion, 500% growth. Now, it's interesting because that's even less growth than we got from the Transcontinental Railroad. So I think I'm being conservative. Okay, And, and what I'm saying to you is, that growth would be the healthiest growth in the world because think of it, it would come from energy systems that didn't put out greenhouse gases, that didn't require methane as a byproduct. Okay, so, and, and, and we need that money because we have to restore the biosphere, which we've destroyed. And, 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 you know, we are not alarmists here at the Academy, but we've been very vocal about the fact that we believe that human civilization as we know it probably has 35 years left if we don't turn this thing around. And we can turn it around. I'm a believer we will turn it around. Yeah, I saw, uh, I'm forgetting the source right now, but I saw uh, the year 2040, or 2048 actually, as the uh, prediction for the end of fish in, the, in seawater, the end of fish in the oceans. Well, yeah, actually, if, if you live in California, the end of crab came this year. Right. right. So every crab boat from Washington State to the Mexican border is in port and cannot catch a single crab because the, the crab are toxic from the heat of the ocean. And until the ocean temperature goes down, which isn't going to be happening anytime soon, those crab cannot be eaten again. So an entire industry wiped out. My favorite line is, who is the Chamber of Commerce serving if they're not serving crab fishermen as well? Well, f last fish in the ocean, frankly, was going to come lots sooner than 1948. But what, what I'm talking about is... 2048, yeah. You know, lots sooner than 2048. What I'm talking about, though, is far more severe than that. I'm talking about the glacier that feeds... Uh, the Ganges, is not going to be able to keep that river flowing at anywhere near sustainable levels within another eh, 10, 15 years. I'm talking about the four other great rivers of Asia with similar problems. And, 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 as, and as Secretary Kerry noted correctly, I believe, um, if you think the refugee problem in Europe is bad now, it's nothing compared to what climate change is going to do. And he went on to say, because then you'll see tribe fighting tribe for water, for food, and survival. And that's what's going to create massive migrations. So, and, 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 and just, by the way, it just came out yesterday. Um, one of the biggest uh, side glaciers in Greenland, way to the north, mm -hmm. is in imminent jeopardy of breaking off. 
there's enough water in that one glacier that if it breaks off and melts, which it, which it breaks off and melts fairly quickly, to raise sea levels 19 inches all by itself. Okay. Wow. Yeah, think of what 19 inches does to Washington, D.C. Well, it's the end of Miami. To London, to Miami, to New York, by the way. Yeah. And I could go on. Anyway, you get the point. So, yeah. So yeah. The, the, end of, the end of civilization is the opposite conclusion, or we can have a civilization that's 500 times bigger, healthier, and more sustainable than it is today. What's your choice? That's what I have. What's your choice? See, small is not beautiful. If you, if you tell somebody who's living on a dollar a day that we shouldn't grow, they're going to tell you you're crazy. Right. But if you tell me I can grow your, and, and the rich will get richer, which is okay. I don't mind the rich getting richer as long as everybody comes along with them. What I do mind is that in the case of the United States, where the divide between the rich and the poor has grown over and over year after year since the 70s, that's what gets me concerned because that's not sustainable. So sustainable, for example, Hillary and, um, and Bernie Sanders are both saying, let's pay for college education. And there's, as you know, a few differences in their positions. Hillary says not for private colleges. Bernie says for all colleges. It's going to cost, well, and our calculation in the academy is that Bernie's number is probably right. Day one, when you put a one penny tax on every transaction of a stock, a bond, or a um, preferred stock, so tradable securities, the day you do that, you're probably going to raise $700 billion. But what's going to happen is the computer trading is going to drop off precipitously. So it's probably going to drop down to the number that Hillary's using, which is closer to the $250, $300 billion mark. That's still enough to pay for everybody going to college at every public school, every public university in America. Now, if going to college today is what the equivalent of going to high school was in 1900, let's get on with it, folks. We live in a very competitive world, and we need to do that. We need to begin to look at education as a national resource. So let me just make sure I'm hearing this right uh, and give you, give you some more time to talk about this. I think this is really an important point. The idea is we stop, taking, we stop extracting from nature, right? So we, we have to figure out how to live our lives and, and make our economy based on something that isn't purely extractive and instead is additive. What needs to shift in the way we measure and the way we uh, trade and the way we invest in order to make that shift from what is a paradigm of extraction and, and, yeah. and money hoarding to a paradigm of, of abundance? Okay. First of all, uh, we, we published at least 10 years ago now uh, a whole bunch of stuff on a thing called Global Reconstruction. So it's not enough to go sideways at this point. We have to restore the biosphere. But we can get rich doing it because restoring the biosphere will cause us to develop sources of energy that are renewable, that are far more economic than any fossil fuel ever was. People who are hanging on to fossil fuel are like people who were cursing machines at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. They call them Luddites. There was nothing wrong with getting children out of the workplace. There was nothing wrong with getting coal ultimately out of the air in, in London. So that was good. What, what, what's wrong is that we forgot that we live in nature. We live in a biosphere. We are a component of a biosphere. And what we've done is we've destroyed our biosphere. So now we've got to go fix it. But it turns out when you fix things and you do it sustainably, you actually make a lot of money doing it, which is great. So all those industries that are going to replace fossil fuels, for example, are going to create massive amounts of wealth. And all the money that's not going to go to, to oil company executives and fleets of private jets and thousands of lawyers and hundred, many thousands of lobbyists, all that money gets redeployed productively because with, when you have a renewable energy source, whether it's solar, wind, geothermal, et cetera, OTEC, the source of the energy is free. So the only cost is the cost to make the widget that turns the energy from renewable into electricity. That cost is drops like a rock it plummets as you make more of the widgets because mass production kicks in and then breakthroughs also occur in the technology so there's a thing in silicon valley called moore's law every 18 months technology doubles in capacity which has been going on for 30 years i don't think it's going to double every 18 months as we switch to the hydrogen economy but i certainly think it's going to double conceivably every three to four years which which is like saying Okay, it won't be as big a difference as between what happened in 1970 to 2015 with Silicon Valley. It'll only be half that good. But not just for 
uh, microprocessors and technology, but for everything. infrastructure and transportation. Everything. Because think of what you can buy with a $350 trillion dollar economy that you can't afford on a $65 trillion dollar economy. Think what you can do in, in America going from a $15 trillion dollar or $16 trillion dollar economy up to probably a $100 trillion dollar economy. So, so educating our children is no longer a problem. Right. Providing affordable housing is no longer a problem. Providing infrastructure, no longer a problem. And then that, in turn, adds to more for the society. So I am tired on living in a broken society. And by one more thing, I think it is a mark of the, of, of the destruction of our society that we believe that we have to have two income earners in order to make a living. In other words, I believe that having children and raising them is something of equal value to any other job on the planet, maybe higher. And I'm not saying that women have to be stuck at home. I think men can make great caregivers too. I can give you lots of examples of men who are the primary caregivers and women are the primary breadwinners. So it's not about gender bias. It's about taking care of our children. It's about taking care of our children. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, my bottom line is that it's it's really, it, it's a tough decision here, right? Because we actually have to figure out how to stop hoarding money at the top, right? I think that's the other piece is, you know, people here, let's make a lot of money. And, and people react to that because that money is generally not shared equally. And, no. and I think that one thing that I'm wondering about is what's the redistributive mechanism in that? What, how is this not just going to be an, well, an insanely divided well, okay. society in 20 years? That's first, the direction we're going right now. First of all, when people think that there's less, everybody's fighting for their piece of the pie. If they think the pie is growing, people can be a little more generous of spirit. So as you know, I, I'm 100% behind $15 minimum wage. So one of the principles I think we should in, in, enshrine in our economy is thou shalt do no harm to the atmosphere or the biosphere. Number two, it is our responsibility that one person working full-time can afford to feed a family of four as a middle-class person. Why are these outrageous ideas? No one would have questioned these even 40 years ago. They're great ideas, but how do you get there? No, no, there? no, no, no. We've been there. We forgot. How do we get We back? were there. That's my point. Okay. Number three, no one should have a job working 40 hours a week and be below the poverty line. So automatically... Everybody's got to get at least 15 bucks an hour. No, no, no conversation. And in the few places where we have gone to $15 an hour, Seattle, San Francisco, now being raised in L.A. You know, the argument was made that Seattle would go broke paying $15 an hour. The exact opposite happened. Seattle's booming. San Francisco also, obviously. Same thing. So my point to, to people is, and they say, well, it's because of this, because of that. No, it's not because of some other factor. When you pay people $15 an hour who've been living on seven, they spend that eight and they tend to spend it in the local economy. Now, they don't exclusively because of, you know, Amazon's going to have its best Christmas ever. But, they, but they're spending money. And even when Amazon has a great Christmas, there's a delivery man who brought you that box. Okay? There's, there's, there's a truck that, that drove it to your door. Um, people don't realize the power of a consumer economy when consumers have money. And what's been happening is, because of the perversion of the political system, frankly, where those who have the money, the golden rule, he who, makes the, he who has the gold makes the rule, okay, that, that's wrong. And what has to happen is we have to say, okay, we want sustainable growth. So not only can we harm the biosphere, we got to start to remediate or repair the biosphere. Number two, one person should be able to provide for a family of four so we can have somebody who is actually, whose job it is is to take care of our children until they're able to go to school, which we should pay for. And we should pay for all the way through college. And last but not least, no one can ever work a 40-hour job in America who is living below the poverty line. That is unacceptable. Now, how do we get there? Real easy. Give up on this austerity garbage. Just start Just start building it. Start fixing the roads and bridges. <laughs> and if you don't, by the way, way more people are going to die. Way more. So it's, it starts with infrastructure, which leads to a rebound in the economy that is shared by all? No, it starts with switching as fast as we can to renewable energy. Renewable energy, energy okay. Second step, simultaneously, infrastructure spending. Third step. Get everybody out of this college debt situation. It is, it is criminal that our college graduates are burdened by debt and they're paying 8% for their debt and Bank of America can borrow for a quarter of a point from Fed. That's wrong. Okay. So what we got to do is get that behind us. And the way you get that behind us is we're going to have to elect leaders who are willing to have the people succeed. Now, to do that, and here's where the tough part is, the people got to wake up. You know, I forget who it was that said it. In a democracy, people inevitably get better than they deserve. In other words, it's I.F. Stone, I believe. 
if, if, if people are, are willing to wake up and vote their self-interest, everything I just said is not a pipe dream. It's the least we will do, the very least. And I keep reminding people, we were here. We, we had the white picket fence after World War II. We had it all working. We had, we had great higher education in the state of California. I went through my entire graduate degree for less than three, for about $3,000, books included. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's crazy that we forgot all that. And now we have to, we're going to turn that around. By the way, I'll give you an example here in California. Once we had a couple of ballot issues referenda passed that caused two major log jams to be ended in California, we went from a debtor state that was free-falling. Constantly broke, yeah. Okay, to cash flow. We're so cash flow positive now, they're fighting about where to store all the extra money. Okay, and this is in a state with severe drought. So it's not like we, it's all roses. So we, we need to be looking as a civilization, as a nation, as a state, as a country, as a state, as a city. We've got to be looking at what's smart, and we've got to be willing to be smart. But to do that, it starts with elected leadership that is going to stand for the interests of 98% of the people and stop being bought by the 2% that's left. So I said on the show um, two weeks before the Citizens United decision, I said, if that case goes through, it could very well be the end of our democracy. And I believe we're now seeing that. So we have to, we're going to have to. And I'm so glad that the issue is so clearly cut now. If you get a Trump or a Rubio or a Cruz, but let's say you stick with Trump for right now, and that's the contrast with a Clinton, this, the choice could not be more stark. And if you get three of them, a Trump, a Rubio or a Cruz, and a Clinton, it will even be more stark. And, and I'm hoping it gets stark because I want that stark comparison so people can say, do I choose light or do I choose dark? Do I choose that we can all get through this together and we can all prosper or do I choose I better get mine because the other guy's going to take it from me? Yeah. So I am a completely against a zero-sum thinking. Small is beautiful is a zero-sum game. What I'm about is two plus two is five if you do it right. Now, if you do it wrong, I get four, you get none. But if, if you do two plus two, you actually get five. In fact, in our country, if, if you do one right, you get five because of the multiplier effect. <laughs> Excellent. Well, one thing that's coming up next on the agenda here uh, in the world agenda and something that is looking better and better despite the uh, crazy, horrifying terrorist attacks in Paris is the climate summit that's coming up in Paris. Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of momentum uh, heading into that. I think there's, a, there's a, an amazing amount of optimism compared to the last climate summits that we've seen. And uh, I, I'm just holding out hope, and I, I'd like to hear your thoughts, but it seems like uh, we're on track for a real p- potential breakthrough here. Well, um, I hope you're right. I'm, uh, I wish I could share your optimism. I, 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 here's a statistic that's very useful to know, and this was just reported by Secretary Kerry last week. Um, when After China and the U.S., as a pre-Paris agreement, both voluntarily set targets for themselves, and in China's case, more ambitious than people thought they would. Within the remaining four weeks, five weeks since then, 150 countries have now set voluntary targets, including India, by the way. Now, those targets are way too high to be acceptable. Absolutely. But to go into the Paris conference with 150 countries, including the U.S., China, and India, already on board with the concept, uh, I think that's a really hopeful, optimistic sign. The real issue, unfortunately, is going to be how much pain, how much more pain do people have to experience from the climate change crisis that we're already incurring right. before they make a solid move? That's the question. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I wish I did. By the way, I think that um, Paris will be good in any event. Just let's not have expectations that are so high that we're disappointed by the beginning of a change in psychology, which is useful. Sure. Sure, yeah, and I think Justin Trudeau's uh, leadership on the issue is also very interesting. Canada's, you know, our closest uh, major uh, oil exporter, <laughs> or could have been, but the Keystone XL pipeline got killed since we were last on the air. By the way, you know, I don't know if we covered this in the last show, but here's an example. You're talking about how do we how do we grow sustainably? There's no question a majority of Americans would would go for a carbon tax. I would propose that the government initiate a carbon tax and give the money back to every citizen. 
Yes, the fee and dividend, kind of a revenue net yeah. neutral carbon tax. I think it's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, and what would happen is that would accelerate the shift to renewable energy, and it would put money back in people's pockets. And if you used more fossil fuel, you would pay more for the privilege. And if you use less, your check's the same, so you get more to keep. Right. Now, if you if you do that as revenue neutral, so that the government, and you're not willing to let the government charge 5 or 10% you know, for the collection costs if you want. And by the way, I think the government would do it if you let them for no collection costs. But even if they charge 5 or 10%, it would be worth doing because it would cause a radical shift quickly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot and talked to economists and we, we have together. Uh, the economists tell you that, look, if you do a carbon tax, the best way to do it would be to collect the money and have the government do infrastructure spending with it. Yeah. But I think that the carbon fee and dividend, where you collect taxes on all carbon and then give everyone an equal check, every citizen gets the same size check, so that people who use less actually end up gaining a lot of money right. compared to those who use more and end up paying more for the privilege to use carbon. What you're doing is you're sending them a quarterly check that says this is your carbon check this is about changing climate change and you're going to change people's consciousness the best way possible which is by paying them to get to get smart hey, i'll tell you i would do it in a monthly check monthly would be great yeah and i'll tell you how i do it direct deposit people would just show it up in their bank account and if the government was really smart, they'd send out an email telling me, congratulations, we just deposited. $500 a month. Whatever it is. Because you left, and, used and less you, carbon this do month. Do you know who is would be the first Republican state to embrace this? Who, Alaska? Of course, Alaska. Now, the Alaskans are getting very fearful because their check's going away. Every, every year it's dropping because the Prudhoe Bay oil goes down. And so the amount the Alaskans get per capita drops. And they're going, gosh, we want to drill in the North Sea. We keep our checks coming. No, actually, just do a carbon tax and you'll keep your checks coming. So when, when the Alaskans figure out there's going to be no drilling, which I think they, if they haven't got that message, they will shortly. Because when Shell dropped out, and then you saw Stat Oil also dropped out. Are you aware of that? No. Okay, so Stat Oil just dropped out of the Arctic also. And, they, and by the way, Stat Oil. Where's Stat from? Norway. Okay. They walked away from all their leases. <laughs> Didn't you bother extending them? They just are walking away with their hands up. So when, when oil companies are telling us that at the price of oil today, which it's not going to recover um, unless there's some catastrophic event. I mean, you know, somebody sets off a nuclear bomb in the Middle East uh, in the oil fields. Okay, it might recover for a little while. But it, it, the, the, it was Martin Luther King who said the moral arc of history bends toward justice. Well, justice is when the few people who've controlled the entire planetary energy system Six large, large companies who've engorged themselves with money, our money, engorged. I mean, it is it is so obscene what they extract from the economy every year, and they do it while destroying the planet. And now, since our last show, Exxon's gotten caught with its own memorandum saying in the '70s they knew they were creating climate change and they didn't care. So to me, Exxon's in the same category. Probably didn't care. They covered it up. Covered it up. So it's just like the cigarette companies, right? Absolutely. So let's add let's add them to the list. Right? So at least of the cigarette companies, if I was, you know, I got addicted. Okay, I got a choice. I could get, I can come clean or not. I did. I was addicted. For 17 years, I was addicted. But I thought, when I found out the truth, which was a long time ago, I said, wow, I'm not going to smoke anymore. So at least you had that choice. And if you don't want to have secondhand smoke, don't stay in the room with the other guy smoking. But with, when you destroy a planet, where do you go? Particularly after they destroyed the moon mission. You know, there's yeah. no, after they destroyed the space program. So I love the space program, and I love what we can do to sustainably rebuild the, the, the biosphere. And I believe that the issue is gro smart growth is absolutely essential. We have too many things to solve. we got too many people to take care of. We have too many broken commitments to our own population and to the citizens of this planet who depend on us. And let's get on with it. Absolutely. Yeah, and one, one final note, Ronaldo, that just talking about rogue companies, uh, VW has been in the news for cheating on their emission standards for years and doing it so intentionally. And they were essentially had a computer program to trick the uh, regulators when they were trying to measure their emissions. Uh, what, what are you, what's your thoughts on what should happen to a company that does something like that? Well, you know, I'll tell you. First of all, I, 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 think, that, I think that the prosecutors – really have a responsibility, which they did not exercise after the banking crisis. When 
a company goes that rogue globally. So remember, they didn't just do this in the U.S. where they got caught. Once they got caught here, then Germany looked and oh, they've been cheating in Germany. And, they, and every country that's looked, they cheated it because what they did is they built they built cheating into their system. So that is a that is a company with a moral ethic that's rotten at the core. You you, you don't you cannot build a successful company. Ultimately, it will catch up with you, and it caught up with Volkswagen. So what I think should happen is the federal prosecutors in America, and I would urge in Germany and other nation states, should extract the maximum amount of information they can using full subpoena powers, find every person in the chain of command who did that. That didn't happen because one engineer was having a bad hair day. That had to be systemic. Because first of all, it was too widespread. Second of all, it lasted too long. And third of all, they changed model years in cars while they were doing it. So you know it was somewhere up fairly high that somebody knew what was going on. And this is an in, in, in a company that prides itself on engineering. So you know they weren't like just going to fall asleep, but what are the engineers? We don't really care what they're doing. Somebody is liable here, lots of people. So the people who actually wrote the software, the people who put the software in the cars, and the executives that approved it and kept that scheme in place, they must come to justice. I would hope they will see criminal penalties because not only did they steal from people, which is bad enough, and Volkswagen may or may not have enough money to fix the problem, by the way. We're looking at something that's going to be in the order of the BP blowout in the Gulf in terms of magnitude. But even if they have the money to fix the civil suits, they should not be allowed to skate free because what they did intentionally was emit noxious gas. And specifically, the NOx was the very high, right? Nitrous oxides, which we know are directly related to deaths from asthma and lung disease. So they killed people for profit. They killed people. Okay, If you don't go to jail for killing people for profit, when do you go to jail? So a guy who steals a loaf of bread with a gun, he'll spend tons of time in jail. If he kills somebody in the process, he, probably, he may even get executed for it. When an executive kills people, they get off scot-free. That's not acceptable anymore. So I would, I would want the full measure of the law against Volkswagen. I believe it will cause the company to be broken up. It should be because it was a criminal enterprise. And I don't use those words carelessly. When, when you have something that core to your operation, the way your engines operate, and you are that good at engineering, and you do it for that long across the globe, you are a criminal enterprise, even if the vast majority of your employees didn't know it. With that, Ronaldo, thank you very much for a great show. It was fun. Uh, I liked I liked bit bouncing things back and forth with you. Uh, uh, we asked for some feedback from people who are listening out there. If you want to write in to info at worldbusiness.org, we love hearing from you. Again, that's info at worldbusiness.org. And until next month, thank you very much for listening. Thanks, everyone.